0: So here's a question, in a world that keeps moving faster and faster, how do women leaders like us, women who want to make an impact in the world through our career or business and not sacrifice our home life, how do we create balance and fulfillment in our lives both at work and at home without facing burnout or constantly feeling like we're chasing an impossible dream? That's the question and this show explores the answers. Welcome to the Selfless Syndrome Show. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley, and I'm on a mission to help women leaders break through burnout so that they can build the life and body they are worthy of and step into the awesome power of who they really are. I'm the selfless syndrome mentor, a board-certified women's health and leadership coach, and alternative medicine practitioner. I'm a wife, mom, and stepmom to four boys and a furball, and I'm the founder of a rapidly growing women-centered coaching business. Stick around, because on this show, you'll learn how to create the life, body, and career you've always dreamed of without having to sacrifice who you really are. Let's go.
1: Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley, and I am very excited to be joined today by a fellow chiropractor who has also gotten into the thyroid world, Dr. Eric Ostanski, And he, like I said, is a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist and a certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. He's the author of the books, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers. And is the host of the Save My Thyroid podcast, which I've had the pleasure of being a guest on as well. And he's personally been diagnosed in 2008 with Graves' disease and actually taking a natural treatment approach, has been in remission since 2009. And after seeing how well natural treatment methods helped with his condition, he began using these thyroid natural uh, treatment protocols to help others with different types of thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions, including hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease, which we have not talked about much on the show, as well as hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So, Dr. Eric, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Alex. Great to chat with you again.
1: Yeah. I'm happy to have you here. And I think we'll just start off, like, I would love to hear more of your story, both because you, A, are a man and B, you've actually experienced what I found. Well, maybe you haven't, you can tell me, but it seems like hyperthyroidism and Graves disease can be a little less common than the hypo versions of things. So I'm just curious to hear about anything you want to share on <laughs> uh,
2: either sure. of those things sure and i, I would agree uh, hyperthyroidism hyper, uh, grave's disease definitely not as common as hypothyroidism hashimoto's in my practice yeah. though i do see more people with those conditions just because of my my background but yeah. uh but yeah to to share my story uh 2000, 2008 i was dieting detoxifying losing weight uh you know, and, uh, just attributed to the diet and everything seemed to be going well. But one day I was walking around a Sam's club and they had one of those automated blood pressure machines. And I decided to take my blood pressure, which was fine at the time, but my heart rate was elevated, which was unusual. And, you know, and I decided the next few days just to take it manually figuring maybe, yeah, you know, I'm walking around Sam's club, maybe that's why, but, um, but yeah, remain elevated and then started to put the pieces of the puzzle together, you know, with the weight loss and the voracious appetite. I mean, I thought that was due to, to dieting and detoxifying, and I'm sure partially that was the case. Uh, but then I started realizing other symptoms, palpitations. And, and anyway, long story short, I went to a primary care doctor, got some blood tests done, was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, and then uh, eventually went to an endocrinologist and got additional testing done to confirm that I had Graves' disease. And, you know, this was all new. Like you said, my background's a chiropractor. And up until that time, I was just practicing traditional chiropractic and and really didn't have a whole lot of experience in the thyroid world. And, um, but that being said, whenever I took my continuing education credits, they were nutrition, they weren't based really on chiropractic, yeah. it was nutri- diet, nutrition. And so I attended a few functional endocrinology seminars uh, through standard process, who I'm sure you're familiar with. And mm-hmm. and so they spoke about thyroid and, and, and natural solutions. So when I dealt with it, I wasn't too familiar. I mean, that was obviously my first experience personally, and I didn't work with others, but I knew that I was going to take a natural approach based on you know, what I learned at those conferences. And I did, you know, long story short, I, you know, made changes to my diet and lifestyle, took supplements, did some testing to find some of the triggers underlying imbalances, and, you know, got into remission, uh, as as you mentioned, in 2009. And since then, helping people with uh, both hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism, but again, more of an emphasis on hyperthyroidism, just because of my background And also because there's not a lot of practitioners out there that work with people who have hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease, so a lot of people resonate with me and and come see me with hyperthyroidism. And uh, and yeah, that's that's pretty much my story. Very interesting.
1: Um, so let's for listeners, let's just kind of hit because I've obviously I think everyone's familiar with the hypo symptoms, like you know tired and your hair is falling out, and these are all things that I've experienced and shared about. You know, I I took the natural approach with myself going through that as well, but, um, let's hit, what are the hyper, like, how do you, what's hyperthyroidism look like? I mean, we mentioned some things like excess weight loss, heart, heart stuff. What else goes along with that?
2: Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, you experience the hypo symptoms, you know, where, where hy- hypothyroidism, everything slows down. And so hyperthyroidism, typically everything speeds up, and I say typically because not everybody experiences weight loss. There are those exceptions. Some people who actually experience gain, weight gain for numerous reasons, but but the classic symptoms are elevated heart rate, uh, heart palpitations, tremors, uh, again, the weight loss, voracious appetite, hair loss, which you also see with hypothyroidism too, but but, you know, again, working with patients with both hypo and hyper, I'll say the hair loss seems to be a lot worse on average in those with hyperthyroidism and uh, loose stools, diarrhea, sometimes uh, very common, or just frequent bowel movements um, throughout the day, more frequent bowel movements. And, uh, you know, some people have what's called thyroid eye disease, which is Uh, more closely associated with Graves' disease. So that's when the immune system attacks the tissues of the eyes and the person might experience pressure, bulging of the eyes, sometimes double vision. And so those essentially are some of the, at least more common signs and symptoms associated with hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease.
1: Okay. Um, Just for listeners to know, what I think is hard about it is there's similarities enough where without some solid investigation. It can be hard to say like, oh, I'm hyper, I'm hypo. And I've also seen people can kind of switch back and forth and not necessarily just from medication. I don't know if you've come across that in practice. Yeah.
2: Or, oh yeah, d- definitely yeah. do. I mean, uh, there could be a few reasons for that. I mean, you're probably familiar with toxicosis, where someone has mm-hmm. actually Hashimoto's, but they have transient periods of hyperthyroidism. But uh, you know, it's also possible for not only possible, but common for people to have both antibodies for Graves and Hashimoto's and you know, and sometimes they might, you know start out as you know predominantly hyperthyroid and then you know switch to, to hypothyroid. And, and then yeah, like you said, sometimes you do get like a switching back and forth. Uh, so so yeah, it does get a little bit tricky. I've had some people where they were diagnosed with Graves disease, but, they went, but the endocrinologist never tested the Graves disease antibodies. They just saw that they were hyper, and then they had the Hashimoto's antibodies. So it was more of a Hashi toxicosis um, situation. And then there are people that have, again, all three antibodies or two out of the three anti, you know, main antibodies that are tested, and, and they do have Graves, but again, they do have you know either the thyroid peroxidase antibodies or the anti-thyroglobulin antibodies.
1: Right. And I've also this is a total side note, just something I've observed in Alaska actually is high pygodian antibodies associated with really low iodine levels like just in the body in mm-hmm. general. Um, so which doesn't necessarily equate to disease as far as I've come to understand, but it's just interesting to see.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's there's actually yeah, a few studies that show that you know what mm-hmm. in the, you probably saw in the research where, yeah that high thyroglobulin sometimes could be associated with, uh, you know, with iodine deficiency. So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up.
1: Yeah. That was just uh, something I've observed in the last couple of years, um, particularly where I am in Alaska, which just
2: tells me there's something
1: off with of our soil probably, but, um, that's very interesting. Okay. So let's unpack like, there's a lot to this, obviously. <laughs> so what, what are some of the steps like in terms of taking the more natural route? Cause I, I, even today, you know, I've, I've noticed women in particular cause that's who I'm talking to but some men as well, like we're becoming a lot more proactive with our health and there's less of the willingness to just be okay with being on medication for the rest of our lives. And I think both you and I can speak to like, you definitely don't have to be there are other ways, other routes to go. Um, and so that's like been my first message but what are you know some of the first steps that you took to start reversing or going into remission however you phrase um getting your thyroid under control again
2: yeah and i use you know it's some people say well you know can you cure graves or hyperthyroidism like why do you use the word remission and you know i guess with graves and as well as with hashimotos there is a genetic component even though just because you have the genetics doesn't mean that you will develop, you know, these autoimmune right. conditions. So I guess I use remission just because, again, there's always a chance of relapsing, even though I feel like I've been cured. But uh, yeah, as far as the steps that someone takes to, you know, to get into remission or to, you know, to restore their health, I mean, what hyperthyroidism? One of the top things is safe symptom management. So even though we're trying to address the cause of the problem, if someone has, you know, resting heart rate in triple digits and, uh, you know, just all these other, you know, harsh symptoms, you know, but more so the cardiovascular symptoms. Um, and then also we need to consider that elevated thyroid hormone levels have a negative effect on bone density. So we don't want to, we do want to try to address those. And the way I did it is I actually took an herbal approach. I took the, the herbs bugleweed, which is an antithyroid herb. Um, And then I took motherwort, which is more for the symptoms, uh, managing the cardiovascular symptoms. And some people do take antithyroid medication such as methimazole, or there's another one PTU. And and again, there's a time and place. I can't say there's never a place for for medication. I do work with people who take medication. I work with people who just do what I did and take the herbs. But either way, whichever approach you take. You want to try to do things to address the cost of the problem. And, you know, there's definitely overlap between addressing hyperthyroidism, Graves, hashi- hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's. I mean, diet and lifestyle play a big role. And, you know, there's there's no perfect diet. You know, as, as you and I know, if you have 10 different practitioners in a room, you're going to get different opinions with regard to diet. You know, um, not everybody's going to agree on the same diet. And, you know, but probably what everybody has in common is we'll all recommend whole healthy foods and to avoid the inflammatory foods and, you know, refined food, sugars, unhealthy oils. And, uh, you know, I usually recommend a good amount of vegetables um, as well. Uh, and, um and yeah, stress management. I mean, stress again, with any chronic condition is, is huge, but I think with Graves, it's even more so, I mean, the research Definitely backs that up. And I know in my situation, stress was a big factor. And I, I was in denial when I was dealing with graves. I didn't think st- I knew stress was a factor. I just thought I was good at handling the stress. But then when I, you know, I did testing, saliva testing for my adrenals and saw how bad they were. And, you know, that convinced me that I definitely needed to do more from a stress management perspective. And uh, you know, of course, getting proper sleep and, you know, and Then just, I like to do testing to try to find certain triggers, underlying imbalances. And usually I start with simple tests or, I mean, to some people, they might not be simple. Like again, looking at adrenals to me is simple, but as you know, most doctors, you know, most medical doctors don't do that. You know, look at, I do look at blood testing. Sometimes I do stool testing. So it does depend on the person, but um. Yeah, that that's real the goal diet, lifestyle, you know, just sup, some supplementation, but really, you know, r- rather than like recommend a whole bunch of supplements initially, I, I really want to find answers like what's going on with imbalances. And then even then I try not to, you know, like I do recommend supplements. But as you know, some people come in already with a list of like 2030 supplements, and we have to cr- try to like, narrow that down and say, well, you know, probably half of these, if not most of these, you might not need. And then, you know, just try to do my own testing and my own interpretation to see what they actually do need.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I've found and even for me when I first, you know, made the transition out of doing traditional chiropractic as you'd called it, and got into more of the at first it was the functional medicine world, which I know is the world you and but now I I, I like call myself my own thing at this point, (laughs) but you know, a lot of, I found that it's so easy to use supplements the same way we would medication is more my point with that. Right. It's like, instead of looking for the, you know, pharmaceutical pill, we're still looking for a pill to make it all better. And both you and I, you know, really do the digging to get to the root um, of it. So, and I'm glad you brought up stress because maybe we can, I like, from our conversation, I know, you you know, I, I talk a lot about that and it tends to be at the root of a lot of things. And I think a, like either, I know I hit the point where I was tired of hearing about it, but B a lot of us don't really understand the importance of that piece because you can have, you know, when I, my hormones got a lot of whack and I, I more had issues with like estrogen and progesterone ratios and that kind of stuff was like my, the Big thing, but my thyroid was affected by that as well. But you know, I was eating well, and I've run marathons, and I've you know, I I knew how to take care of myself, but I was not handling the stress piece well at all. So, I I love your <clears throat> input around that. If you've got any tidbits <laughs> to add,
2: yeah, I mean, again, yeah, <laughs> stress stress is huge, and I would say the majority of people overrate their stress stress levels or should I say uh, underestimate their stress levels and overestimate their stress handling? They they just like myself and and you know there are some people that granted stress doesn't seem to bother them and maybe they're internalizing it maybe they're not um, and there's only so much you could do for the stress levels uh, but as far as in, in, just changing our perception of stress and you know doing I, I know during our interview we spoke a lot about. Um, towards the end, we spoke about heart math, which I think you're you're certified in heart math, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you have the certification, yeah. yeah. so I'm not certified, but I've been using it for a number of years on on patients. and um, so I'm definitely believe in, you know, in monitoring the heart rate variable. well, actually on myself, I should say. So what what patients, I can't say I recommend heart math across the board. So um usually when I send like the first follow-up recommendations, I'll give different options. And honestly, I tell people, it's fine if they want to just block out time for meditation, you know, for, um, you know, whatever you want to do yoga, deep breathing. Um, you know, I like heart math because I like to, you know, it's, it's visual and you could see, you could, you know, you can monitor it on a regular basis. And to me, just like blocking out time for doing meditation just wasn't working in my situation, you know, and then when I was using the inner balance from heart math, it was, it was helping. And so everybody's different. If someone is in a similar situation, and they're, you know, whether it's meditation, deep breathing, yoga, tai chi. You know, if you're using those methods or other techniques, and they're working, great. If not, then that's when you might want to look into heart math. I won't say much more because, again, you know, I don't know what approach you take. If you do, do you recommend heart math like across the board to everybody? Or
1: I use it as a option of learning how to regulate let's put it that way regulate the nervous mm-hmm. system um you know there's they, they have several different breathing techniques and whatnot and i actually i haven't used um so for those listening heart math has a, a tool that i have started incorporating um with my clients as well called inner balance which actually allows you to measure your like on a daily basis just see how how easily you come into coherence and what coherence is is where your brain and your heart are connected we <laughs> will just say that and um and they they come out of stress like in stress everything is chaos and nothing is is working well together a really good example is like metronomes have you ever seen the video of the metronome syncing up over time um mm, yep. <clears throat> like we have to get things on the same wavelength so that our brain and our heart are are synced up is essentially what it is um what i found is a lot of a lot of people have like we all have there's tons of tools out there so inner balance is one of those things that you know you can use for 10 or 15 minutes a day and measure how well you're getting into coherence. And that is a, a tool that helps, you know, you monitor how stressed you really are. Which I am someone as a driven high performing kind of type a person um, that needs that type of input. So I've either used that or I have an aura ring and that has been a lifesaver for me. Cause you know, when it's like, Hey, you hrv was like 20 last night i'm like oh maybe i'm feeling stressed i should do something differently today um and it's been cool to see like you know it'll it'll register i'm napping or something when i i do actually meditate and so like there's there's cool tools so for those listening like if you need some input you know a lot of us can can go through life and be like oh i'm fine you know if you're having issues and you're here listening to the show chances are there's some level of chronic stress driving a lot of what's going on in your body. Um, and some of us need that objective data in order to recognize yeah. it is the first step. <laughs> Awareness is always the first step. And then we can do something about that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. I agree. Now, do you recommend, well, I'll say what I recommend. So I, I recommend huh? for everyone to block out time for stress every single day. I mean, it sounds like you said you do that with with the heart band, like at least, you know, like 15 minutes per day. But I think the trap some people fall into is, you know, they'll go do yoga for like twice, twice per week. And then the other five days are not doing anything from a stress management yeah. standpoint. But so for me, I try to say, even if you start out with five minutes per day, you know, just to get into that routine of doing, you know, so if they're doing heart math, or even again, if they're doing yoga meditation, five minutes per day, get in that routine, and then you could gradually increase the duration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I also do that. And it's honestly one of the, even if it's just breathing, like most of us have forgotten how to breathe and that's a big way that we impact our stress response actually. Um, And we didn't talk about, I'll just share this as a, like to contextualize this for everybody, you know, we, our body responds to stress in the same way it did like hundreds, thousands, you know, however long ago you want to say that we've been around. Um, and back then stress was all due to like, oh, the bear's, you know, chasing me and going to eat me. And then generally like the, the stressor would be gone. And in the world we live in now, we never get a break. Like there's, you know, we might intellectually, we know, oh, I'm going for a run or I'm sitting in traffic. Running is another thing that causes stress just as a aside. Um, but our old brain can't differentiate that. So it's just constantly living in something's trying to kill me, you know, maybe Um, that's like an extreme example, but I forgot why I got on that little diatribe. Um, Oh, so breathing, breathing is deep breathing is, is one of the ways that I kind of help <laughs> clients start to cultivate that habit just as something easy we can do. Um, some other tools I've used are, I don't know if you've heard of the fit mind app, but it takes like a very scientific approach to uh-huh. meditation and it, it, all it, it does like a lot of meditation is just going within and focusing on a different part of your body. So like, even if you spend one minute, just focusing on the tip of your nose and the breath moving in and out from the tip of your nose, like it, it starts you yeah, as the meditation app that way. So, um, yes, I'm a big proponent of, we all need to take really ba- small baby steps, but learn that whether or not you think you're stressed, because I promise you, you are. <laughs>
2: so, yeah. You know. Now, are you one of those people that do testing like I do? Or are you one of those that just like, oh, everybody has adrenal problems. So you pro- probably, because that's also, again, we, we spoke about diet, like different practitioners, you know, take different mm-hmm. approaches with diet and same thing with adrenals. You know, I'm, I like doing adrenal testing. Some practitioners like to do more food sensitivity testing. Some do both. But uh, since we're talking about stress and adrenals, do you do you do any saliva testing or Dutch testing or
1: I do occasionally, Um, I really like the Dutch test. So that's, that's the one that I still do the most. I'll be honest, what I have found is my approach doesn't really change with testing, like some of the supplementation I might recommend, you know, can change. But when we're really looking at, like, root cause and getting into the Cause I, I, go more the route of like getting into our psyche with change and, mm-hmm. and how we really dive into that. And as a result of doing that work, generally, you know, hormones start to balance and thyroid does its thing and, and all that. So, um, I do do some testing, but actually a lot less than I used to, um, mm-hmm. just, you know, a, I find most people have an obscene amount of lab work that they've had done. And we can talk, We I know we talked on your show about kind of the issue with labs, especially around thyroid. testing but um so you know i can take that and apply some functional numbers to it and whatnot just to kind of see where things are at for the large pot but then like the dutch test for those listening is is probably the best if i had to call something the best in terms of really looking at hormones and how your body breaks them down sex hormones particularly and then your adrenal function as a result of that so it really looks at your whole hpa access
2: yeah. It's the only one that looks at like the metabolism. You can't look mm-hmm. at the metabolism of the hormones through saliva or blood or so on. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and you also brought up an important point with, you know, sex hormones. I mean, uh, you know, and I, I say this a lot healthy, you need healthy adrenals to have healthy sex hormones. So, uh, you know, again, not to say there's not a place for taking progesterone or estrogen or testosterone, but, you know, always again, at least how I was taught in the approach I take is always, prioritize adrenals and a lot of times you improve adrenals through what we've been discussing here and the person might not need to take progesterone or other biotensical hormones.
1: Yeah. Um, And I find that a lot. And, you know, just to reiterate, I know my listeners have probably heard me say this way too many times, but cortisol, the stress hormone, which is produced by your adrenals. So, you know, it adds to use a, you know, use the term, it adds stress to your adrenals if you are under stress, but it also interrupts the production of sex hormones and also with the thyroid. So we can talk about how it's interfering with the HPT access to which HPA and HPT stand for hypothalamus pituitary adrenals and the hypothalamus pituitary and thyroid. So like the first part of both of those pathways are coming from the same part of your brain, but cortisol will like shut all that down. It actually converts progesterone into cortisol when you're under a lot of stress and that was how I had a baby five weeks early, but that's a different um, different story, <laughs> different topic than what we're talking about right now. Um, so let's dive into the testing around thyroid real quick, because I like to have this conversation just so people are aware. You know, what do you find? I mean, I've got my opinions, but like, what do you find is really necessary to get like clear on the hyperthyroidism, you know, diagnosis? what do you like to look at? Obviously we need some antibodies in there to to see if it's grave disease. And yeah, just tell me your opinions on testing around thyroid. How about that?
2: Sure. So with, uh, so whether it's hypo or hyper, definitely recommend at least a basic panel. And to me, a basic panel is, you know, TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. And I, you know, I like to look at the free hormones, a free T3, free T4, um, I mean, if someone does the total T3, total T4, that's fine, but I mainly pay attention to that set of free hormones and then, um, yeah, the, those antibodies. Uh, so I, I, for, if someone, if we're suspecting Rave's disease now, again, a lot of people will see me, they've already had the testing done, but if not, if they just come to see me and let's say they, you know, they have hyperthyroidism that's been confirmed with the labs, then, uh, then. Yeah, I'll recommend for them to get the antibodies, which for Graves, they're called thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins or TSI, and they're a type of TSH receptor antibody. So um, they actually bind to the TSH receptor, and that's what causes the excessive secretion of thyroid hormone. Um, But it's also worth mentioning that a lot of people with Graves also have TPO antibodies, which, of course, is also common with Hashimoto's, uh, more... Closely attributed to, or closely associated with Hashimoto's, and so those thyroid peroxidase antibodies are are commonly elevated. Um, some people do have elevated anti-thyroglobulin antibodies, which again, those are more closely associated with Hashimoto's. But you know, specifically, the Graves antibodies are the the TSI or or also TRAb, TSH receptor antibody. And then I know we spoke uh, when when I interviewed you about reverse T3. So because I think you said your reverse T3 was elevated when when you were dealing with subclinical hypothyroidism. And so if I'm working with someone who has hypothyroidism Hashimoto's, I will recommend reverse T3, which uh, for those who are not familiar with reverse T3, it's the inactive form of of T4. You know, the active form is T3, T4 converts into T3. But, you know, if you're under a lot of stress or for other reasons, infections, you could or hyperthyroidism. So, and that's actually why I don't test reverse T3 in hyperthyroidism because, you know, um, there's different perspectives when it comes to reverse T3. Some will say that it's increased, you know, like um, when, when it increases, it, you know, cuts off the conversion of T4, T3. Some say it actually acts on the T3 receptor to prevent the T3 from binding. But either way, when you think about hyperthyroidism, you know your body's trying to do things to slow it down. You know it want it would want it would love to do either one to slow con, or both a slow conversion of T4 to T3, prevent thyroid from binding to receptor. So either way, you get really high levels of reverse T3. So honestly, in most cases of hyperthyroidism. I, you know, it's been years since I tested. I used to test reverse T3. And it's like, why, why bother? Everybody's elevated with the reverse T3. It's not really giving any yeah. new information or any useful information, hyperthyroidism. So I, I don't test reverse T3 for hyper. I do test it for hypo. Right. And uh and yeah, I guess as far as the the thyroid test, you know, those are the ones, you know, that I recommend. I mean, I do recommend maybe as you do it, I'm not sure if you recommend like other basics like complete blood count with differential and conference and metabolic panel. I mean, especially with hyperthyroidism, I, I mean, for everybody, I think it's important, but if someone's taking antithyroid medication um, such as methimazole, uh, a lot of times that'll increase the liver enzymes, put stress on the liver, uh, might depress the white blood cell count. So really, I think it's critical for anyone with hyperthyroidism to get those tests. I mean, they're helpful, I think, with everybody. And I get those tests on a regular basis, um, you know, at least once a year. But for hyperthyroidism, really want to look at the liver, want to look at the white blood cell count. And um, and it's up to you if you want to talk about other tests like vitamin D or, I mean, there's so... Again, all good things. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
1: What I'm curious because there's such a disparagement among physicians in the literature. What's the vitamin D level that you like
2: to see? That you would consider normal? I mean, when I do vitamin D on myself, or you know, on on people I work with, I mean, I like to see it at least above fifty. I mean you know some say it should be like between 60 and 80 and and honestly i don't know i mean the you know there's nothing clear in the literature that i've seen that says it should be so it's more i think you know just based on practitioner experience but um you know i don't mind if i see mine in the 60s i usually like to see mine in the upper 50 like above 50 but commonly see mine in the upper 50s lower 60s and i'm i'm happy with that if someone's in the 70s I'm also okay with that. I mean, once it gets above 80, I mean, I'm not stressing over it, but, you know, depending on, you know, it's, it, they're probably taking vitamin D if the levels are, you know, especially if it's that high. And then, so we just might want to have them cut back so it doesn't keep on going up. But yeah, I, w- I would say like in the fifties minimum, you know, sixties, seventies, I, I I agree it is, is okay. Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm fifties, my marker too. And, you know, for those listening, Western medicine, like the lab range will be 30 and i found most people who are in the 30s you feel like total poo um and a lot of times that's you know either contributing to symptoms of having some hormones being off or also causing some of that so i was just i was curious what what range you use because everyone is a little different but i think i've seen 50 more across the board like for proper hormone
2: function. <laughs> we'll yeah. Yeah. Hormone function, immune, immune function, you know, for to it also, Yeah, I mean, vitamin Z, a lot of people think of it just to help with calcium absorption, which it does yeah. do that too, but yeah, it has so many more functions and yeah, there's plenty, as you know, plenty of research on vitamin Z. Again, the levels I haven't seen as far as like 60 to 80, but, um, but there's, as far as like the functions of vitamin Z and the role it plays it. Yeah, Yeah. definitely 30 is too low. And yeah, even if it's in the the 40s, I mean, that's better than being in the 30s. But still, I try, I I will, you know, either encourage the person to get more sun, or usually I am honestly telling them to supplement just because, you know, a lot of people are like me, where I'm, you know, I don't get enough sun. And I, you know, I try to get go into periods where it's like, okay, I'm going to get sun every single day. And then, you know, I'm doing it. But honestly, I just, you know, I, I guess also it's unpredictable. Some, you know, you can't, the sun's not going to come out every single day, but, but it's not just that. Honestly, even when it's out, I can't say every single day, you know, I get sun exposure. Um, so same thing. I rely on supplementation. I try to get sun exposure in combination with that. But if I just relied on sun exposure by myself uh, alone, my levels probably would be in the thirties or maybe, maybe they would be in the forties, but you know, pro- probably more likely in the thirties.
1: Yeah. And just, um, I, my listeners know I'm in Alaska, which is kind of (laughs) like the furthest North places you can be. And I rarely, and have struggled myself even with supplementation to get above 50, um, with my vitamin D levels, just because we have Mm -hmm. such long periods of darkness. Also the UV isn't very strong here. So even in the summer we have sun, but like I can be in the sun all day long and not get sunburned because it's not very strong. So, um, you know if you're in those kind of climates definitely considering supplementing in some
2: way is yeah uh, but it's also I have. yeah it's also important to mention too there's some people there there's some genetics behind vitamin D as well where there are people who are in Florida Arizona you know and and they still need to supplement vitamin D yeah. i mean the only way to know really is by testing so i'm not saying everybody should supplement vitamin D what i'm saying is regardless if you're in Alaska or somewhere else up north Or if you're, you know, down South getting plenty of sun, I would still test because I've had a few people where they're getting regular sun exposure all the time and they're, you know, down South or, you know, what, again, one of the places we mentioned are, you know, California, you know, and again, their vitamin D levels are still low. And so again, there might be some genetics and then there's, you know, other like, Even like places, a lot of pollution might be blocking like some of the UV light. So there could be numerous reasons, but testing really is the only way to know if you need more vitamin D. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's fairly easy to get that these days, but I still run into medical doctors who are like, don't do it. But I think for the most part, some are Western medical, I should say, um, are coming around.
2: So yeah. Well, what happens a lot of times the medical doctors will give it, but they'll give vitamin D2. They'll give their prescription form and they'll give like 50,000 IU's, you know, per week for just like two months. And then that's it. They'll do a retest. And then the, you know, the retest might show the person's normal, but then once yeah. they stop taking it, they'll, you know, they'll be deficient, but they won't retest again. Maybe they'll retest next year when their physical comes around, but, um, yeah. but yeah, so that it's, that they're not continuously monitoring the vitamin D, and, you know, just encourage, I mean, again, there are some people that need to take a few that actually a lot of people I, in my experience need to take a few thousand I use. And it sounds like you're one of those people where you live that, you know, even a few thousand I use not enough. <laughs> how much, how much yeah. do you, you take if you don't mind me asking? Um,
1: so I finally found, you know, in the winter, I definitely up to at least 10,000 I use a day. Okay. Um. I actually found a supplement and this is just for listeners that is 25,000 I use. Um, and so I Hmm. take one of those maybe three times a week in the winter. Um, I kind of gauge just, I use some muscle testing and stuff to figure out like when I need it, but, um, yeah, so I've got that. But then in the summer, you know, I'm, I'm usually taking at least three to 5,000 through the summer as well. So, and it's for those like those listening, it's one of the, and I I have clients that are, you know, have read, there's another side of literature that says, oh, we don't need vitamin D and vitamin D doesn't really matter. And I'm like, yeah, it's a hormone in the body and does a lot of stuff. So I don't really know, but um, you know, I, I have found that people who have really weird symptoms or, you know, you're not getting any answers or like, no one can figure you out. Actually, it's, tied to vitamin D, especially with like, you know, crazy hormone stuff and like period nuttiness. And I've just, I, especially living in Alaska, I've seen some weird stuff that the answer was actually vitamin D. <laughs> so just know that. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. And do, do you recommend K2 with what vitamins yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so for anyone listening, you want your vitamin D supplement should have K2 with it because it's how the body actually absorbs it. Um, so either you need to take it separately or most of them these days have, you know, at least K2 along with it, but it'll say it on the bottle.
2: So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So just, um, yeah. Cause again, otherwise the the concern is that the calcium might be deposited in some of the soft tissue. So just, um, Mm -hmm. so again, if you took it short term, maybe not a big deal, but if someone took like vitamin D, like continuously for years and, you know, by, yeah anyway so yeah i'm glad we're both on the same page with that yeah yeah absolutely
1: so um kind of in bringing this full circle we talked about a whole lot of things (laughs) anything like that we haven't hit on that you want to hit on first and then you know what what's like one thing someone could do if they're listening to this and they have either hyper or hypothyroidism like what's the first step that you would recommend they take
2: yeah, so I mean one thing I want to mention what you mentioned earlier is uh you know like what was you know cuz I'm one of the few guys <laughs> you know that yeah. have not few guys I mean there's a lot of men but a lot more women to have both hyper and hypo it's just more common and and same thing with my practice I mean even though I'm a male you know I'd say probably like at least 80 if not 90% you know of people you know are women just because it is more common and um and also maybe because men again not to stereotype but still men don't like to go to doctors. I mean I don't like to go Definitely. to doctors either. So <laughs> just uh but uh um yeah so anyway that uh yeah so it is more common in, in 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 females. And yeah, other than that, just uh you know again I mentioned the safe symptom managements, you know, so like I mean the the one thing I mean, I hate saying the one thing is safe symptom management because that's just managing the symptoms, you know, and even if someone's doing it naturally, like, like we said, it's just kind of covering it up. It's just, uh, um, so, um, but again, it is important to, to say, so I would say, I mean, everyone on their own could do things from a diet and lifestyle perspective, a stress management. I mean, it does help, you know, to work with the practitioner, you know, like me or yourself, someone who does have experience, um, you know, this, again, you, you, know, you have a lot of experience being the certified, you know, certified in hearth math and, you know, some people might get it on their own. And, but again, it's nice to get that guidance, but, uh, but yeah, I would say, uh, you know, so s- safe symptom management, you know, definitely make sure, you know, do things from a diet lifestyle perspective and, uh, yeah, just, um, you know, the goal, to try to, you know, find, find triggers underlying imbalances. So I re- recommend working, you know, with a practitioner, you know, like myself or, you know, a Dr. Alex, How about, do, do you also see some, do you see people up with hyper or is it mainly like, uh, Hashi toxicosis cases? Or? I've
1: largely just seen hypo and Hashi Hashimoto's, um, not for any particular reason. I think beyond that, that's been also my story and kind of like just yeah, goes in line with what I'm yeah. attracting to practice. But yeah, that's not to say I, I've, I've got a handful of clients that have been hyper um, as well, but yeah.
2: Yeah. Again, it's just not, not, not common. And like, you know, the reason why I see so many is just like you, you know, people would hypothyroidism resonate more with you just because you're a backstory. And, you know, with me, it's more, you know, the hyperthyroidism Graves' disease, just seeing my backstory and, you know, just um, work with me. But yeah, so I would say, you know, ideally, of course, I'm going to be biased and say work with a practitioner. But like I said, there is a lot you could do on your own from a diet and stress management perspective. And just, again, be safe. Uh, One other thing I'll say, the herbs don't work on everybody. So like, if someone's listening to this, and if they, you know, if you're taking antitharm medication, you know, again, I I can't, since uh, I'm not a medical doctor, and I'm not, Anybody, you know, I, I can't tell someone to stop, even my patients. I can't tell them to stop taking medication. But um, again, you, you just never know that if the herbs are going to work. So that's another reason to be cautious and maybe work with someone if you're thinking about, you know, taking something like bugleweed or motherwort. Or there's, you know, higher doses of L-carnitine could also be effective. But just, you know, again, some people they'll work wonderfully, like in me and and uh, some others. But other people they won't. So you know, just be cautious. But the final thing I'll just say is that there's hope, you know, there's, you know, most, I won't say most, but a lot of endocrinologists will say radioactive iodine thyroid surgery. I mean, that's, that's one of the big things that differentiates graves from Hashimoto's, With Hashimoto's not to say this is not, I mean, they'll, as you know, they'll usually say, Mm -hmm. take thyroid hormone replacement and just, that's it, (laughs) you know, and um, with, with Graves, usually they'll say, take, maybe they might say, take antithyroid medication, but a lot of times they'll say, let's remove your thyroid or let's, you know, ablate the thyroid. And, um, and there's no turning back, obviously when you do those procedures. So I would say, you know, definitely look into addressing a cause first. Most people are able to avoid those procedures. They're, you know, there's a time and place for, for surgery, but you know, again, it's a shame that a lot of endocrinologists just jump the gun and say, "Let's get your thyroid removed." So, so yeah, I'll leave leave it with that—that that there's definitely hope.
1: Um, real quick, because you brought it up, and I get this question from some people: if you have been through either getting it removed or um, ablation, and you're still having issues. <laughs> is there, do you, have you worked with anybody in that scenario? And is there, I mean, obviously you're going to be medicated for the rest of your life, but are there still things that we can do to help improve quality of life? Um, yeah. I mean, that?
2: if someone gets, you know, the surgery, you know, someone gets a complete thyroidectomy, like you said, they're definitely going to be on thyroid hormone replacement because they don't have a thyroid. And, um, and it really depends on the situation. You know, if they had graves, we still would want to, you know, to dr- keep in mind, as you know, that's more, that's an immune system condition, just like Hashimoto's okay. is. So if someone removes the thyroid gland, you still want to work on, you know, the immune system, other underlying imbalances. Same thing with radioactive iodine. The only thing is that, you know, it gets tricky with radioactive iodine because, you know, like you know, just, it's not exactly the same as surgery. And some people, some people don't need to take thyroid hormone replacement. Sometimes they need actually multiple rounds of radioactive iodine, and they might get one, and then they become hyper again. And then they're, you know, some, I'm sure will get the second dose, but others might not. And, but I guess even with radioactive iodine, I mean, sometimes it could be a challenge if someone has gotten in and they're experiencing certain symptoms, but, you know, my approach wouldn't change. I would still, you know, try to address the cause of the problem, and and I should also say, you know, if someone has a non-autoimmune condition, like you know, if someone has, there's like toxic multinodular goiter, where they might get radioactive iodine thyroid surgery. Again, there's still causes of that. It might not be autoimmune, but there's still other imbalances. You know, like problems with estrogen metabolism, insulin resistance are common causes of nodules, and you know, could also be a factor with a goiter, thyroid swelling. So, so regardless if someone has Graves or A non autoimmune hyperthyroid condition, and they receive those procedures, you know, you still want to do things to balance the body to try to improve the immune system and address the underlying cause.
1: That's my approach, too. I was just curious what you did. Well, Dr. Eric, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wealth of knowledge around a different aspect of the thyroid and all of that. Um, For listeners who, you know, relate and resonate with you and want to connect, how can they do that?
2: Yeah, so uh, my main website is natural endocrine solutions.com. But then I also have my save my thyroid podcast you mentioned earlier, and you could find that I have another website, save my thyroid.com. But you could also find that, you know, just save my thyroid and you know, Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And then on my books, natural treatment solutions for hyperthyroidism and Graves disease. And as you mentioned, I do have one on Hashimoto's Hashimoto's triggers. And uh, and yeah, those would be the the main ways to to find me.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you and your time.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Alex. It's been a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Selfless Syndrome show. I truly couldn't make the show if it weren't for you, my amazing, lovely, and loyal listener. I so appreciate the emails, the shout outs, the shares, and the reviews, all of which inspire me and motivate me to keep coming back to the mic week after week in order to provide high quality content that helps you find that elusive thing called balance and really build the life, career, and body you are worthy of. I have one little request. If you have benefited from this show in any way, I would so appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and review the show. You can leave a five-star review, leave an honest review, This really helps us get in front of more amazing listeners just like you and keep growing our mission to help women leaders around the world build the life, career, and body they are worthy of.